0: Now, I remember when Calvin, my son, uh, was two, he turned two, and we had decided we would wait until he turned two to let him watch TV. And so when he turned two, we said, let's see, what's the state of children's television these days? Uh, And we together decided that the state of children's television 10 years ago was grim. Uh, And one thing that I found particularly off-putting was that there were a, a number of shows, I think Dora the Explorer started this trend where you'd be watching the television show now my 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 son here is not exactly overly verbal at 2 years old and so i'm watching this show and there's a character looking right into the lens like looking into my soul like right into my optic stems and asking a question and then pausing an extended and uncomfortable pause waiting for my answer so hi my name is diego what's yours like that or or what is the letter that makes the sound b, and, and I, as the adult on the couch, am left with this, this horrible Sophie's Choice. What do I do? Do I, like a crazy person, answer a- and say, I'm Zach, the letter's B, or do I just sit there in this awkward silence while this cartoon character gives me this crazy manic stare and wait it out. Well, this morning I'm going to give you who are listening and watching at home that same choice. Uh, How are you going to deal with this question? What is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in life and and death. Now, for some of you, that is the kind of question you say, well, I need a few days to think about that. That's a deep one. That's a big one. I don't have any ready to go. Some of you, if you were raised in a particular tradition, you might have an answer, boom, ready to go off. The, you don't have to think about it. You say my only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. That is the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. A wonderful catechism. Now, we use a different one here. Baptist catechism is based off the uh, Westminster. Uh, My friend Mike Whitmer and I, he's a a former seminary prof of mine, we always have this debate about whether uh, his baptism or our baptism is better. Ours starts with, what is the chief end of man? And he said, that's so cold and impersonal. Ours starts with, what is your comfort? What is your only comfort? And I always say, yeah, but then it goes right to death. You get life for a moment. What is your only comfort in life? And death. It goes right to death. And these are these are question-answer documents used to teach children primarily the faith, the Christian faith. Why would it go right to death like that? That's bleak. But the fact is that these things come from the 16th century. They come from a time when death was more on the minds of people. Throughout most of human history and certainly most of church history, Death was on the minds of people everywhere, not just depressing people who dress all in black and write bad poetry and stuff, but everyone, it was on their minds because it was on the present. It was everywhere. Here comes the long Calvin quote I warned you about. This is from the 1500s, and we read uh, John Calvin saying this, innumerable are the ills which beset human life and present death in as many different forms. Not to go beyond ourselves, since the body is a receptacle, nay, the nurse of a thousand diseases, a man cannot move without carrying along with him many forms of destruction. His life is in a manner interwoven with death. For what else can be said where heat and cold bring equal danger? Then in what direction soever you turn, all surrounding objects not only may do you harm, but almost openly threaten and seem to present immediate death. Go on board a ship, you are but a plank's breadth from death. Mount a horse, the stumbling of a foot endangers your life. Walk along the streets, every tile upon the roofs is a source of danger. If a sharp instrument in your own hand or that of a friend, there is the possible harm manifest. All the savage beasts you see are so many beings armed for your destruction, even within a high-walled garden where everything ministers to delight, a serpent will sometimes lurk. Your house, certainly your house is a safe place, Uh uh-uh, your house, constantly exposed to fire, threatens you with poverty by day, with destruction by night. Your fields, subject to hail, mildew, drought, and other injuries, denounce barrenness and thereby famine. I say nothing of poison, treachery, robbery, some of which beset us at home, others follow us abroad. Amid these perils, Must not man be very miserable as one who more dead than alive with difficulty draws an anxious and feeble breath, just as if a drawn sword were constantly suspended over his neck. I don't know why everyone's not reading John Calvin all the time. It's a real upper. Actually, I I think it's a wonderful passage. If I kept reading, there's hope there, but that gives just kind of a snapshot of how they viewed the world during the reformation. And even throughout most of America's history, families would prepare and dress and display their own dead in their own homes, in the parlor, for people to come and visit, pay their last respects, comfort the family. It it was very present, death. Death is now shunted off to the side, out of sight. In fact, the, the very question there, that hopeful question from the beginning of that catechism, what is your only comfort in life and in death? If you named a book that, I don't know, it might not do very well. People would say, that seems like a a bit too much reality for my flight to Phoenix, you know? But if you just named it, what is your only comfort in life? Maybe we're looking at a New York Times bestseller. Life, my life can be good? Well, that sounds wonderful. And, and, you know, we've done such a good job of shunting death off to the side that these days you can get to 25 years old, 30 years old. And if you're lucky, you can have very little interaction, just the the briefest of passings in the night with death. You know, my only experience someone might say is, is just a brief glimpse of grandma in a casket when I was 11 years old. And it wasn't a real connection of any kind. And on one level, I'm thankful for this. My son has probably been to 100 funerals because I'm a minister, but I'm glad he hasn't grown up in a world where there's wailing and death and pestilence in the streets all the time. On the other hand, though, the fact that that death is kind of behind a shroud and not on our minds is something I believe the enemy loves, and I'm not alone. C.S. Lewis, in writing his classic The Screwtape Letters, is writing letters from a, a senior demon to his demon nephew, which is sort of funny to me, a demon nephew, uh, giving him tips on how he can be a better demon and help their father below. Uh, And as he's writing about this, he starts talking about war. And he says, you'd think that we as demons would love war, but be careful. He says this, consider what undesirable deaths occur in wartime. Men are killed in places where they knew they might be killed and to which they go if they are at all of the enemy's party prepared. How much better for us if all humans died in costly nursing homes amid doctors who lie, nurses who lie, friends who lie, as we have trained them, promising life to the dying, encouraging the belief that sickness excuses every indulgence, and even, if our workers know their job, withholding all suggestion of a priest, lest it should betray to the sick man his true condition. And how disastrous for us is the continual remembrance of death which war enforces. One of our best weapons, contented worldliness, is rendered useless. In wartime, not even a human can believe he is going to live forever. And of course, I don't believe he was meaning to impugn doctors and nurses particularly. We are all in on this lie. We lie to each other in this regard. We have this sort of unspoken agreement in our culture that we choose to together believe this silly lie to coexist in this fantasy land where we say to one another and pretend to believe that death is this odd foreign thing that's only once in a while captured in grainy footage like Bigfoot and like Bigfoot, which rarely has any actual interaction with humanity. And yet parallel to that widespread delusion in the culture is this absurd notion that it's Christians who are living in denial. That us having to have a God a big guy in the sky who comforts us when times are dark. That's the foolish thing. That's the nonsense. That's, that's out of touch with reality. And yet what happens every time our culture comes, even briefly, into contact, into touch with that reality of death, think 9-11, think the threat of war or natural disasters or widespread sickness or whatever. People generally flock to churches, or open the Bible, or begin to read about things that are transcendent and above themselves. Historically, that's been what happens. Some might say what's going on there is they're fleeing the reality that they've encountered and running to some false hope, but that doesn't make sense to me, because when they get to the church, the scriptures are opened, and as Steve already read for us, there's an awful lot acknowledging the ever-present reality of death in those scriptures. I don't understand why someone fleeing the notion that yes, we are mortal and being reminded of that would run into a building where much of the time, right front and center, there's a depiction of a dead man hanging from a cross. No, from the very beginning, Christianity has been a religion for dying people and it does its best amongst those who remember that they are dying people. Richard Baxter, the great Puritan, said that he preached as a dying man to dying people men. And just like Screwtape reminded his nephew, the threat of death, or even just vivid reminders of the threat of death, constantly maybe on that 24-hour news cycle, turn it off for a while, read your scriptures, remember God's still on his throne. But but that reminder of the threat of death often makes people more open to the message of Jesus than they otherwise would have been. Spurgeon experienced this uh, very early in his ministry, right when he came to London. He wrote this, if ever there had been a time when the mind is sensitive, it is when death is abroad. I recollect when first I came to London, how anxiously people listened to the gospel for the cholera was raging terribly. There was little scoffing then. During times when we are reminded of our mortality, there is little scoffing. Contrast that with when times are good, when markets soar. When you heard, you know, this rumor or that, and that's what's occupying your mind. Oh, really? Tempest Bledsoe is going to be on uh, Dancing with the Stars next season? That's uh, Vanessa Huxtable, if, if you don't know your, your 80s TV. Oh, man, I hadn't even thought about that possibility. I wonder how she'll do. When, when you had all the toilet paper you needed and your schedule was packed full of fun activities jetting around, contrast that openness or lack thereof to the gospel. The message is the same either time, but the reception is different. The message is that Christ conquered sin and death. And yet in our culture, we've denied sin. And it was a very slow con, a long con. First we said, okay, sin, you know, just don't talk about it. Keep it back there and don't worry about it. Then we said, no, bring it out into the light, celebrate it. And now we've denied sin and with it, we've denied death. And so the message that Jesus has conquered sin and death does not ring nearly as true in our culture as it does in many other places and in many lands and cultures where there's been great revival lately. When I was talking to uh, this wonderful minister from uh, the, the mountains outside of Kathmandu, he was telling me about this amazing, amazing revival going on right now in Nepal, and it was rooted largely in the suffering that people had in common. When you talk to Pastor Bojan from the Swahili congregation, he will tell you about all the hardships the people have endured and how it just brought them, it pushed them to the cross where they found salvation. Undoubtedly, a major reason Christian churches are shrinking in the West is that our culture is intentionally more and more out of touch with the realities of the world. First and foremost, that we will all die. And when those realities come crashing back in, people remember and instinctively they flock. Again, not right now so much to the churches because you have to socially distance, but historically that's been the case. And yet it's always short-lived. And that is the question, why is that? Why, once that reminder kind of peels back and fades out of the the 24-hour news cycle and we're not constantly reminded of it, do people slowly drift back into their old habits, their old worldviews? Why do they drift apart? Is it because we just needed a little comfort in that moment and we'd take anything? You know, just give me say, like fishing an old uh, teddy bear out of the attic that used to give me comfort and pacify me and, and give me a little sense of consolation. And yeah, I know it's just stuffing and some kind of flammable polyester fur situation, but it makes me feel good, so who cares? No, the answer is that our modern world has been perfectly and painstakingly engineered to immediately close back up whenever there is a chink in the armor that that keeps us from seeing the realities around us. And as soon as we see through that for a moment, we say, oh my goodness, is there a God? Is there something more? Is Is it true what I've heard about Jesus? It will close back. It's like when you take... Uh, jello. You know, you, you ever take finger jello? What do you Is it called finger jello? You just hold the jello in a square? Nobody knows? Finger jello. Yeah, for a minute it sounded weird. It still sounds weird. It's like finger jello, right? And you, you take a pencil, like you do, and, and you stick it right through, right? You're making a hole in it, but as soon as you pull that out, it's going to close back up. And the same thing happens when there is a piercing through that, that shell that our culture has put around the notions of death and, and, and the grandness of the design that God has built into the world and we get a, a glimpse through it as soon as it comes back out, it sucks back in and it closes up. It's designed that way. That's Netflix closing in and Hulu and 10,000 channels to keep us amused, which literally means not thinking. That's the latest sensationalist scandal. That's social media telling you to build your own picture of yourself as a celebrity or as somebody just amazing or funny or whatever you're trying to do, your smartphone being the God of your life, closing that back up. That's 47 hours of televised sports every week. That's the the latest manufactured controversy for people to get all upset about and shout at each other about because it will occupy their minds even though it doesn't matter. But we have this moment in this moment before things close back up, this temporary opening for right now, as you interact with your neighbors as you're able to, as you care for loved ones who may not know the Lord, as you talk to people online who may be questioning everything right now, we have a chance, first of all, to urge them to embrace the reality that on a long enough timeline, the survival rate for everyone drops to zero. And yet, that's a hard pill to swallow, but on the back end of that, because We are not someone who runs from reality, but who go right through it and into it, trusting our God to catch us, to follow that up with the true hope of the gospel. And look at the way that Paul sums up the gospel again and again and again. It's stuff like, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Or the gospel is God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. What is being described there, even in that abstract language? Jesus dying on a cross. The death of the sinless one for the life of the sinners. Scripture tells us the wages of sin is death. And that is the situation in which everyone alive finds him or herself apart from Christ. Whether they try to forget it or not, whether they think about it or not, Whether they deny it and are in denial or not, we are due our wage, which is death. But our good news as Christians, what sets us apart, not only from those who have no hope beyond this world and its self-delusions and its vanities and its momentary reprieves, but also from every other religion on earth is that our savior Jesus paid that debt for us. He took the wages of our sin and offered us the gift of God, which is eternal life. Which means that at a time like this, when the constant whir of motion and movement and gotta, gotta keep moving, gotta keep moving, gotta stay busy, avoiding any time alone with our thoughts or unpleasant truths, when that is paused, even for a couple weeks, and people are reminded anew of the frailty of their bodies reminded that we're always one little accident, one attack, one catastrophe, one plague away from losing this whole house of cards that we have built for ourselves, we can say there's a better house, a house built on the rock. Let me tell you about it. And as Jesus says in Matthew 7, the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Jesus died to take the curse of death. Jesus rose again, crushing the power of death. And any message of the gospel that doesn't have death involved in in the telling is missing the core of it. Now, granted, there are self-professed Christian churches who are in the business, like the world, of putting a shiny veneer on everything, of doing all they can to ignore the fact that Christianity is a religion for the dying. And they, they think they're doing a good thing. They think they're being more positive and, and they say, you know, we need to be hey, have an upbeat version of Christianity, not this medieval chanting in Latin and flogging ourselves and wearing hair shirts. We need something snappy, something forward-looking. My friends, a historic Christianity rooted in the death, resurrection, and coming again of Jesus is the most forward-looking thing you could imagine. We cannot improve on it. And it's not... According to our worldview, beyond this life, and yet we keep on hurtling toward the end as if it will go on forever. No, we don't have our heads stuck in the sand trying to look forward. You can't do that. That's why the scriptures are constantly of this, just like John Calvin about all the dangers around that Psalm Psalm ninety one that Steve read for us. Do not, don't fear the terror of the arrows that fly during the day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes. At noonday, there are so many real things out there, and one of them one day will end your life. Do you have hope beyond that? What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the world looks at us and says, hold on a minute. Why are you so focused on that? You're missing your life. You're missing here and now. You, you silly people focused on. On this supposed afterlife, and we don't want to do that either. We don't. We don't want to focus entirely on the pie in the sky, by and by, after you die. Scripture, in fact, tells us that because we have hope in death, our lives mean so much more. First Corinthians 15, which is a great Easter message. And I got to tell you, I, I like the. I think it was Beth Whittington came up with the idea, or was it Jen? Somebody said, let's just let's just wait. If we're not able to all meet together and eat a lot of sausage and eggs on Easter morning and have an egg hunt and do the whole thing, let's just let's just hold off and do it for real. I thought that's a good idea. So I'm going to even though it's Lent, I'm going to throw you a lot of resurrection stuff these next few weeks. We'll get some Easter in here anyway. First Corinthians 15, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. And scripture tells us the last enemy that he destroys is death itself. I think it's no mistake, no accident that Lent, a time of repentance, leading up to this celebration of the resurrection at Easter, begins with Ash Wednesday, which is a reminder of our sinfulness, yes, but mostly of our mortality. And I've been doing Ash Wednesday services for 15 years now here at Judson. And I got to tell you only one time have I said the thing you're supposed to say. When you put the ashes in the form of a cross on the forehead of the penitent, you're supposed to say the, the main thing you say is, remember, you are dust and to dust you shall return. And part of me always kind of went, but there's no hope in that. It's It's just a reminder of the mortality. Yeah, it's the beginning of the road. So I usually go with one of these other things, you know, go and sin no more, repent and believe the gospel, which are fine, but there is value in simply being reminded of our mortality because we shy away from it. And and the irony is so thick that we shy away from thinking about death when even the immortal God, God, the son, Jesus Christ became one of us and embraced death so that we might live. All of this, makes me think about a story about a young priest from Belgium. His name was Joseph de Vuster. I may be saying that wrong. It's Belgium. I mean, what is it? Is it Dutch? Is it French? I don't know. Vuster Wuster. We'll go with that one. But when he was about 20, he was ordained a priest, and he was called to the priesthood. He knew it. This was about 1860 or so. And he found himself at the altar at All Saints Church on his knees, being ordained with several others, taking vows to become a servant of the church. And as was their tradition, at one point in the service, they laid down and someone came around and covered each of them with a black funeral pall. Not a culture that shied away from acknowledging death and its reality, especially not in the church there. And as he was laying there under that black pall, a verse came into his mind almost audibly. And he said to himself, I have been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, from Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. Upon his ordination, he took the name Damien, and he said to God, I'll go anywhere. I'll work with anyone, just send me. And God did send him to Hawaii. Right? This, this I think all pastors, in the back of our minds, we know we're really called to Hawaii and we're listening carefully for the still small voice to say, now's the time to go. Well, he went, but it wasn't as wonderful and laid back as you might think that it would be. There was a lot of need and he continued to minister there for eight years. And during that time, he heard about an even greater need, that there was a group of people, not on the, the big island where he was, but on Malachi that that had no help. They had no spiritual guidance. They had no Uh, anything that one would need in order to get along in the world. And the reason was because it was a leper colony and they were under quarantine, real quarantine, like the kind of quarantine where if you try to leave, you are shot. And, And this colony was it was closed off on three sides by the sea on one side by an impassable sheer cliff. And so they were stuck there. Now, when the government put everyone there, they assumed that the lepers would kind of care for each other. They'd form a society, a culture. The more healthy ones would help the less healthy ones. They assumed all of this. They thought that there would be some kind of order and some some kind of just, you know, laissez-faire. It takes care of itself. None of that happened because no one was healthy enough to take the lead. And if they were, before anything could really get going, they would become unhealthy and they would begin to get sick unto death. So they had no homes, they had no doctors, they had no ministers, they had no order, they had no hope. It was just death and despair. As many died of exposure and hunger as died of the disease itself. He it was in his early thirties when Father Damien arrived, and he had such a reputation for Christ-like love that as the bishop stood on the steamer and and, and uh, Father Damien was on his way down to the, the sea from the, uh, the the boat to the shore there. He said to them, I bring you a man today that will be a father to you, that loves you so much that he does not hesitate to live with you and die with you. And Damien did. He lived with them. He he ministered to them. He built a church and 300 houses for the poor. He helped them build an infrastructure, a community. He helped them ri- uh, raise livestock and farm and learn all these things. He sometimes had to learn it as he taught it to them, but he was on top of it and he was pouring himself Into that. He helped them with physical problems. He gave everyone who died during his time there a Christian burial. They had been just tossing them into one mass grave, but he gave them each a Christian burial. In fact, he built 1,600 coffins during his time there. And he truly became one of them and he preached the gospel to them. Unlike most people of his day, he did not see the lepers as subhuman, as these inconvenient reminders of mortality and suffering, and how bad life can be, to be put out of sight and out of mind. But no, he saw them as fellow image bearers. And he would say to them again and again, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves even you lepers whose society has pushed off in a corner. Jesus loves you lepers. Put your faith in him. Trust in him. He began every morning with lauds and ended every day with vespers, and he wanted the first and last thing that they heard Each day to be, Jesus loves you. The world may want to forget that you exist, but Jesus loves you lepers. Until one morning he stopped saying that message. Never again after that point did he say, Jesus loves you lepers to them. Something had changed. That morning he stood up and he said to them, Jesus loves us lepers. Because that morning he'd spilled some boiling water on his foot and he felt nothing. And he knew in that moment that he had contracted the illness while touching them, caring for them. He had truly become one of them. And now there had been many other Christian workers who had come before him to that colony and they had done what you would do or I would do. They had said, we want to help. And they had done laudable work. They had brought uh, Bibles and food and medicine and supplies and shouted encouragement from the ship as they said, we got to go because it's a leper colony. I would do this because God needs me to care for my family, and I can't do that if I am dead. And so I'm not saying that they were not as good of ministers as Damien, but that Damien was a different kind because he was with them, bandaging their wounds, sharing their meals with them, comforting them when they were in pain, burying them when they died. He knew that going to that island was essentially a death sentence, but in his mind, he had already been dead since he was laying there and that black paw was placed over him at 20 years old. And he heard those words from the spirit in his head. I have been crucified with Christ, so I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Christ is living through me. Now, I'm not suggesting that in this moment, the true Christians will disregard what the government says and go and get your hands dirty, not in the least. I tell you this story because it reminds me how Jesus knew that it was a death sentence to come here and walk amongst us in the very same way. That that he knew to come into this place cursed by sin and minister to us who were steeped in our sin and under a debt of sin that would bring about death to bear our sin on his shoulders so that we can have hope beyond sin and death so that though we die, we will not perish. As Jesus told Martha, though we die, yet we will live. That's beyond our ability to grasp, I think, how big it is. What, what do all the other gods you hear about and read about seem to have in common? Whether we're talking about the Canaanite and Egyptian gods of old or the Greek and Roman gods of all those weird uh, tales that you can you can read about in mythology or even the kind of fuzzy, vague notion of the universe or energy or whatever that people talk about today. What do they have in common? They are, in this sense, separate, removed, not touched by all of the things that make it difficult to be a human, certainly not by death. They're all practicing divine social distancing, not Jesus. He came to say not you lepers, but we lepers to the point that well, he had no sin of his own, he became sin for us. He took our sin and its punishment on his shoulders and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And because we have this comfort in death, We also have great comfort in life. In fact, I I only gave you the very little beginning of the answer to this question. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, what is my only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Maybe my buddy Mike is right. That is one great way to start a catechism because it goes right to death but the answer ends with life. It makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Are you heartily willing in this moment to live for Jesus? Right now is a good reminder of why we should be because we have comfort in life and in death. You know, later in Spurgeon's ministry, maybe 20 years after the first outbreak or 10, there was another cholera outbreak in London. And Spurgeon said this at that time, now is the time for all of you who love souls. You may see men more alarmed than they are already. And if they should be, mind that you avail yourselves of the opportunity of doing them good. You who have the balm of Gilead. When their wounds smart, pour it in. You know of him who died to save. Tell them of him. Lift high the cross before their eyes. Tell them that God became man, that man might be lifted to God. Tell them of Calvary and its groans and cries and sweat of blood. Tell them of Jesus hanging on the cross to save sinners. Tell them that there is life for a look to the crucified one. Tell them that he is able to save to the uttermost all them that come unto God by him. Tell them that he is able to save even at the 11th hour and to say to the dying thief, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. What a vivid reminder of the power of God to give us hope in life and in death that while he's hanging there and he says to Jesus, what have you got for me? Have mercy on me. Remember me when you enter your kingdom. He didn't look to him and paint a rosy picture, put a veneer of of shiny, happy people over it. He didn't say, you know what? Thief on the cross, today is the first day of the rest of your life. Today was the last day of the rest of that guy's life. He had very little time left, and yet Jesus gave him comfort. Today, you will be with me in paradise. There is comfort for all of us, even for that man dying on a cross, or the woman on her deathbed battling cancer, or the 20 year old who feels invincible today and tells the newspaper reporter, I don't think I need to do anything special because I am young and strong and I'm all that matters. There's hope for all of us. What we have in common is that we are all going to die. So let me ask you this Dora the Explorer awkward question and give you a moment to think if what your answer really is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Lord God, we thank you that we have comfort from Jesus. That in a moment like this, when we turn on the television and there is fear and there is all sorts of uh, reminders of our mortality and the frailty of our bodies that there is something strong, something something deep, something rooted in eternity and, and immortality and um, omnipresence and omnipotence that we can grab onto. Something that won't be blown back and forth with all the waves of the world, that, that won't be upended or uprooted by the storms of life, there is an anchor to our faith that is Jesus Christ. We thank you for that, Lord, and we pray that we could, as we are able, live out that same sort of uh, self-giving love that so many before us have, that so many believers have, have, in their own way, set the church apart from the rest of the world, not fleeing cities, but staying behind to care for those who are sick and dying, remembering, those. When in a moment, where it would be easy just to say, well, I've got lots of videos to watch and lots of hobbies to undertake while I'm stuck at home. Lord, bring to our minds our neighbors, our, our co-workers, those who may be forgotten, those who may be lonely, those who may be scared. Lord, remind us that we have a treasure in jars of clay and that we have not only our only hope, but the only hope that there is in life and death, which is Jesus Christ. Amen.